0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 53, the book of Acts, chapters 25 and 26. In Acts chapter 25, Paul is standing before the new governor, of Judea who is Festus and he has been joined by King Agrippa and his sister Bernice now this is not a formal trial per se it is more an informational gathering it is meeting because after hearing Paul's accusers then hearing from Paul governor Festus is at as much a loss as was his predecessor Felix, to find any crime that Shaul had committed. Now it must be understood, however, that neither Felix nor Festus had any real interest, any real interest in trespasses that Paul might have perpetrated against any Jewish religious laws. Rather their concerns were over whether Paul might have violated any Roman laws or was a threat to Roman rule and the implication of the high priest as the head of the Sanhedrin was that Paul was a rebel who was disturbing a peaceful coexistence between the Jews and the Romans and the Romans greatly valued that. It was clear that due to the lack of witnesses to the charges and due to Paul's demeanor and his outright denial of being a troublemaker, that he was not fomenting a Jewish rebellion. However, because Paul was a Roman citizen, because even before the verdict was handed down, he had appealed to Caesar, Felix and Festus's hands were tied. Paul was going to Rome no matter the outcome. So let's pick up at verse 13 of Acts chapter 25. We'll read these particular passages and then get started again. Verse 13, chapter 25, which is on page 1396. If you have a complete Jewish Bible... After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus, and since they were staying on there for some time, Festus had the opportunity to acquaint the king with Shaul's situation. Now there's a man here, he said, who was left behind in custody by Felix, and when I was in Yerushalayim, the head Kohanim, the head priest, and the elders of the Judeans informed me about him and asked me to pronounce judgment against him. Now my answer to them was that it was not the custom with Romans to give up an accused man just to grant a favor. Before he has met his accusers face to face and had the opportunity to defend himself against the charge. So when they arrived here with me, I did not delay, but I took my seat in court the next day and ordered the man brought in when the accusers stood up instead of charging him with some serious crime as I had expected they disputed with him about certain points of their own religion particularly about somebody named Yeshua who had died but who Shaul claimed was alive now being at a loss as to how to investigate such questions I asked him if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried on these matters there but since Shaul appealed uh, to be kept in custody and have his case decided by his imperial majesty, I ordered him held until I could send him to the emperor. Agrippa said to Festus, well, I myself have been wanting to hear the man. Tomorrow, he replied, you'll hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Berenice came with much page- pageantry. They entered the audience room accompanied by military commanders and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, to all of you here with us, do you see this man? The whole Judean community has complained to me about him, both in Jerusalem and here, crying that he shouldn't be allowed to remain alive. But I discovered that he had done nothing that deserves a death sentence. Now, when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. However, I have nothing specific to write to his majesty about him. This is why I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I might have something to write. Seems irrational to me to send a prisoner without also indicating what the charges against him are. We discussed in our previous lesson just who exactly Agrippa and Bernice were that they, that Festus and Paul were pleased that they had come to Caesarea Maritima so that they could lend some insight into this hard to understand set of complaints against Shoal. Our grasp of this will help to explain how things went with Paul's trial, what happened afterward. Now, Agrippa and Bernice both fancied themselves as Jews and interestingly it seems that um, the Jewish people had no issue with that partly this public acceptance of Agrippa's Jewishness is because he was thought to be faithful to many of the Jewish temple rituals especially as it regarded the biblical feasts which he made a, quite a show of attending, Now, this endeared him to the high priests and to the Sadducees, but it also made him look good to the common populace, something politicians are especially adept at. Agrippa and Berenice's claim of Jewishness comes from the fact that Herod the Great, their mutual great-grandfather, had as one of his wives, Mariamne. Now, although Herod himself wasn't a Jew, in fact, he was an Idumean, meaning he was a descendant of Esau, Mariamne was, indeed, a Hebrew. By now, the biblically mandated patrilineal descent, in other words, the father determines the ethnicity of his offspring, that had given way to the new Jewish tradition of matrilineal descent. The mother determines the ethnicity of her offspring. So whatever children Mariamne bore for King Herod the Great, they were considered as Jews because she was a Jew. Mariamne was Agrippa and Bernice's great grandmother now this particular Agrippa of our story with Paul was Agrippa the second his father Agrippa the first was also considered a Jew and he had married a woman named Cyprus now little known about her but she was a granddaughter of Herod the great so whether she was actually a Jew we don't know But apparently she was considered to be. The point of our ambling down memory lane of the Herod dynasty is that who and what was a Jew had already become a problematic matter well before New Testament times. How a person became identified as a Jew varied. It could be that they were a Gentile who converted to Judaism by means of circumcision. Could be that one side of a person's family were Jews, even if the other side were Gentiles. Could be that indeed a person had a long genealogical record proving their heritage as a member of the tribe of Judah. The person could have been the offspring of a Gentile slave who belonged to a Jew. If a child of a slave born while that slave was still in the service of the Jew was born while they were still in the service of the Jew they were generally considered the property and therefore the family of the master. Thus that Gentile slave offspring could be considered to be Jewish depending upon the decision of the Jewish master. And there were other nuances as well. Now, see, this is no doubt the reason for the extraordinarily long and thorough genealogy of Yeshua that we find in the Gospels. It was not only to establish that he came from King David's royal line, but foremost... It was to prove he was a Jew in every way that Jewishness could be determined since Jewishness was requirement number one for a legitimate Messiah. Thus we never hear of Yeshua's claim of his of his Jewishness being disputed and this was no small matter in this era. So Agrippa and Berenice did have some credentials for being Jewish, as did their parents and grandparents. So, the Jewish people did not question their Jewish identities. However, I find it personally fascinating that Agrippa and Bernice apparently found it to their benefit to maintain their Jewish identities in this Gentile-dominated Roman world rather than to kind of play it down. It's clear that it was providing beneficial help to them as the Roman Empire did not see Jews in a bad light or is in any way inferior Further proof is that the territory that Agrippa and Bernice ruled over for the Romans was Gentile, Lebanon, and areas to the east of it. The Romans didn't use their Jewishness for political purposes to help them rule over the Jews. The only issues that the Romans seem to have had with Jews in general was when they demanded special rights due to their Jewish religion, which Rome was often obligated to give to them. And when they rebelled, as they constantly did in Judea, compliments of the radical zealots and the Sicarii. Yet the Romans were sophisticated enough not to paint all Jews with the same brush, And there wasn't any empire-wide or official program of persecution occurring at this time. And even only selectively after the Jewish rebellion began in 66 AD that resulted in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So whatever hatred now the Jews exhibited for Rome existed mostly in Judea and it centered primarily in Jerusalem. It was less so in the Galilee, nearly not at all out in the Diaspora. This is because in Judea, the Romans were seen as unwanted, unclean occupiers of Jewish land. But the Romans had a much lesser presence in the Galilee, so there were fewer run-ins between the Romans and the Jews Diaspora Jews had for generations chosen to live among the Romans so generally there were few problems Paul as a product of the Diaspora doesn't seem to display any particular dislike or even prejudice against the Romans so his comfort level with Gentiles is evident In the book of Acts and in all of his epistles, Yeshua had certainly commissioned the right man for the job of taking the gospel to the Gentile world of the Roman Empire. Thus what's really happening with Agrippa and Bernice's involvement with the Paul affair has to do with Festus trying to figure out what to put in his report to Nero as the reason for Paul's incarceration and his subsequent appeal and since Agrippa and Bernice were Jews and familiar with Jewish ways, Festus's fervent hope was that they could help to untangle this perplexing situation he found himself in. in verses 14 through 21. Festus is explaining to Agrippa the dilemma he's facing with Paul. So he gave him a brief review of how Paul wound up in his jurisdiction. We don't need to go over this to any degree, as we've already carefully followed Paul's path to this moment. What's clear is that from Festus' perspective, he was suspicious of the high priest's motives for wanting Paul brought back to Jerusalem for trial, and so characterizes the high priest's request as asking for a favor. Now, his suspicion was only heightened when the high priest told Festus of the charges against Shaul that, to Festus's mind, amounted to some minor Jewish religious disagreements the heavy implication of it being a favor to give over or to give Paul over to the high priest is there must be a hidden agenda and that there is no good or compelling reason for the request of a change of venue so festus denied it the further implication is that while festus smelled a rat he didn't know quite what it was. He wasn't at all aware that the high priest, no doubt egged on by the zealots and the Sicarii, intended to assassinate Paul well before he arrived back in Jerusalem. Festus also reveals to Agrippa that Paul had appealed to Caesar and that he intended to honor that. This tells Agrippa that nothing that goes on here is going to change the trajectory of where this is headed. Paul's going to Rome one way or another. Now somehow, as we read in verse 22, Agrippa has heard about Paul beforehand, what he was doing, and he wanted to know more details. Now was his opportunity and he was glad for it. Now because Agrippa and Berenice wore the official titles of king and queen, when they arrived at the hearing we were told there was much pomp and circumstance befitting of their regal status and Festus then had Paul brought in and he explained to the king queen and all their guests that this this Jewish man, Paul, had many complaints against him from the Jewish community. A better translation of this is as the complete Jewish Bible has it. The complaints were from the Judean Jewish community. And they were so upset with Paul, they wanted him executed. But Festus admits he could find nothing about their complaints that would lead him to to sentence Paul to death. And then Festus openly admits the real problem at the moment is he has no clue about what to tell the emperor about this situation, so he's beseeching especially Agrippa and Berenice for their advice. Let's move on to chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we are still on page 1396. Acts chapter 26, Agrippa said to Shaul, you have permission to speak on your own behalf. Then Shaul motioned with his hand and he began his defense. Now King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that it that it is before you today that I am defending myself against all the charges made against me by Jews because you are so well informed about the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know how I live my life from my youth on, both in my own country and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and if they are willing, they can testify that I have followed the strictest party in our religion. That is, I have lived as a parush, a Pharisee. How ironic it is that I stand on trial here because of my hope in the promise made to our fathers. It is the fulfillment of this very promise that our twelve tribes hope to attain as they resolutely carry on their acts of worship night and day. Yet it is in connection with this hope, Your Majesty, that I am being accused by Jews. Why do you people consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I used to think it was my duty to do all I could to combat the name of Yeshua from Nazareth. Nazareth. And Yerushalayim, I did so. And after receiving authority from the head Kohanim, I myself threw many of God's people into prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Often I went from one synagogue to another, punishing them, trying to make them blaspheme. And in my wild fury against them, I even went so far as to persecute them in cities outside the country. On one such occasion, I was traveling to Damascus with the full authority and power of the high priest... I was on the road, it was noon, your majesty, when I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and my traveling companions, we all fell to the ground. Then I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Shaul, Shaul, why do you keep persecuting me? It's hard on you to be kicking against the ox goads. I said, who are you, sir? And the Lord answered, I'm Yeshua, and you're persecuting me. But get up, stand on your feet, I have appeared to you, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to what you've already seen of me and to what you will see when I appear to you in the future. I will deliver you from the people. And from the Goyim, from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they will turn from darkness to light, from the power of the adversary to God, and thus receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been separated for holiness by putting their trust in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not disobey the vision from heaven. On the contrary, I announced first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout uh, Judea, and then also to the Gentiles, that they should turn from their sins to God and then do deeds consistent with that repentance. It was because of these things that Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. However, I have had God's help, so to this day I stand testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what both the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would die, and that he, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to both the people and to the Gentiles. But just as he reached this point in his defense, Festus shouted at the top of his voice, Shaul, you're out of your mind! So much learning is driving you crazy. But Shaul said, No, I'm not crazy, Festus, Your Excellency. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and sanity. For the king understands these matters. So to him I express myself freely, because I am sure that none of these things have been hidden from him. After all, they didn't happen in some back alley... King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Sheol, In this short time you're trying to convince me to become messianic? And Shaul replied, Whatever it takes, a short time, a long time. I wish to God that not only you, but also everyone hearing me today might become just like me except for these chains. Then the king got up, and with him the governor and Bernice and the others sitting with them, after they had left, they said to one another, This man's doing nothing that deserves either death or prison. And Agrippa said to Festus, If he hadn't appealed to the emperor, he could have been released. Festus turned the floor over to Agrippa. No way what was happening was an official trial. It was a discussion in order to help Festus know what to say in his report to Nero. So Agrippa was given wide latitude to proceed as he wanted to. wisely, he simply asks Paul to explain himself. Now, when we're told that Paul stretched out his hand to begin his defense, it's speaking of some kind of a customary gesture, very likely one of acknowledgement and respect to Agrippa. It certainly was not like when he was arrested at the Temple Mountain, he motioned with his hand for the mob to be quiet so that he could be heard. He begins with the customary Roman salutations and flattery to the dignitaries that are present, but as he was as when he was before Felix and then Festus, ah, Paul might exaggerate, but he doesn't lie. He acknowledges that Agrippa, and then by extension Bernice, are well informed about Jewish customs and sensitivities since they're Jews. And rather than attempting to make his defense short and sweet, he asks for patience. He wants to be fully heard. But it's imperative that we notice that what Paul really gives is not so much a defense against the specific charges against him, but rather a defense of his entire life. Who he is, what he's done, what it's all led to. So Paul begins by presenting his life's resume. He essentially says that the facts of his life's history are public knowledge. Many can testify to the truth of it if if need be. The first thing I want to address is in verse 2. Take a look at that. Where most English translations... Have Paul say that he is accused by the Jews. In grammar, the word the is called an article. And here, the Greek does not contain the article. A literal translation is, I am accused by Jews. In fact, considering the context it is probably most accurate to translate this as I'm accused by Judeans why is that important? see because the Bible editors adding, uh, adding in the article the that's not there in the Greek it has Paul pointing fingers to all Jews as a religion or as an ethnic culture as being part of the conspiracy and the hatred towards him. Remove the article the and it merely has it that certain Jews which he identifies as Judeans certain Jews are making these accusations. It's an important distinction because Paul is regularly characterized by some Bible commentators as actually being anti Jewish. And thus, by saying the Jews are against him, he separates himself away from the Jews. That's the way he's often characterized. Paul says that he has been known by the Jewish community in general since he was young. And this includes in his own country and in Jerusalem, where he went to the religious academy of Gamaliel. His own country, of course, is Cilicia. He goes on to explain his religious affiliation. He is a Pharisee. That would mean something to Agrippa and Bernice, as they understand the religious party system of the Jews. It also is also immediately clear that there would be a natural antagonism between the Pharisee Paul and the Sadducee high priest. And also notice that Shaul refers to the Pharisees as the strictest party of our religion. Those little words mean something. First, Strictest does not mean rigid or mean. Rather, it's meant as a badge of merit that claims that as a Pharisee, Pharisees are the most devoted among the Jews to obey God. At least that's Paul's take on it. Well, what's the religion of the Jews? Judaism. So the Pharisees are part of Judaism, says Paul. But Paul is also implying that while that what he is currently practicing as a member of the way, which his entire audience is well aware of, and it's the main reason that Agrippa is so interested in hearing from Paul, is also then a legitimate part of our religion Judaism. He is a Pharisee by social, religious party and training and he's also a member of the way according to the specific halakha that he adheres to. Paul sees no conflict between the two and Agrippa apparently sees none either. I don't want to go any further until I explain what I mean. I hope those words didn't just run right by you. The halakha that Paul follows. While the simplest simplest meaning of halakha as we've discussed is Jewish law by now hopefully you've realized there never was and still is not in modern times a single universally recognized halakha for all Jewish people. Now it's just like that within Christianity depending on what denomination you might belong to, you indeed follow what would be called Christian doctrine. But the details of the Christian doctrines that you follow vary from denomination to denomination. So while Paul shares a continuing bond with the fundamental teachings of the Pharisees, his doctrine has changed to also embrace the teachings, the Halakha, of Yeshua. This is verified by the Greek grammar that's used here. As Dr. David Stern points out, in his commentary on this passage, he says the Greek verb lived is in the aorist tense, which implies that an action accomplished in the past has effects that continue on into the present. Paul lived as a Pharisee in the past, he continues to do so after becoming a believer. He's still a Pharisee. He says he's still a Pharisee. His grammar says he's a Pharisee. Paul is still a Pharisee. Now, this would not be hard for Paul to do since much of the doctrines of the Pharisees were similar or the same as Yeshua's. Now, a few important ones were not, of course. So while since time immemorial it has been the common Christian mantra to say that what the Pharisees taught was nearly in direct opposition to what Christ taught, that is quite wrong. That's just factually incorrect. This is because most Christian scholars are ignorant of Halakha. They don't know what the ancient rabbis actually said. So they make assumptions based on a handful of encounters of In the Gospels, between Yeshua and some particular Pharisees. Well, Paul absolutely continues to identify himself as belonging to the party of the Pharisees. And by the way, he has so in earlier passages of Acts as well. But then in verse 6, I think Paul takes some liberties. Because his real agenda now begins to emerge. He says that the real reason he's on trial is because of the promise that his forefathers received. What promise is this? It is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. So to Paul, the Abrahamic covenant is not only alive and well, it remains the centerpiece of God's plan for redemption through Yeshua. Now let's revisit that covenant. It's been a long time since we studied it, way back in Genesis. In Genesis 12, 1-3, we hear this. Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is, of course these final words of that covenant by you all the families of the earth will be blessed that's Paul's focus for the moment Paul is certain that a Jew such as Agrippa will see the irony in this which is that essentially he's on trial for believing in the Abrahamic covenant but in all fairness that's quite the exaggeration unless we include the idea of spiritual blindness in the equation. Even if we want to say that it was because of Paul's belief that Yeshua is the Messiah that is a necessary part of the Abrahamic covenant, which has never been part of the complaints against him at any point, yet in an indirect way, due to the spiritual blindness of Jews who won't believe that Yeshua is their Messiah Paul does seem to be receiving an inordinate amount of negative attention that is pretty irrational if it can't be accounted for by something like spiritual blindness however a non-believer like Agrippa I don't know how he's expected to recognize this. Further, there's no doubt from Paul's earlier defense that he is connecting the subject of resurrection from the dead with Abraham's covenant and with Yeshua. He's bringing it all together. Paul now elaborates on the Abrahamic covenant by saying that the 12 tribes hope to attain the um, promise that's contained in it. This reference to the 12 tribes is, of course, meaning all Israel, both houses of Israel, including Ephraim, currently still exiled, and Judah, which has returned to the land. Now Shulam and Le Cornu point out that before, during, and after the New Testament era, the standard understanding among Jews was that while one house of Israel had returned from exile, Judah, the other house, Ephraim, those ten northern tribes, had not, but rather they remained in exile. Because unlike Judah, Ephraim stubbornly remained in their apostasy. Now please pay close attention to this. As often you will receive pushback by some in the Jewish community because they believe that Ephraim came back with Judah from Babylon and thus all twelve tribes have already returned. Their point is Is that today's Jews supposedly represent all 12 tribes and have since 500 BC? This claim does not match Scripture, it does not match history, but it does have a huge effect on how we are to interpret Ezekiel chapters 36 through 38. Now much of the Christian world also believes that all of Israel not just Judah returned from Babylon. This has a great deal to do with what is sometimes called replacement theology meaning that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen. Now according to replacement theology all Israel All they're receiving from God at this point, in this age, are his curses. The church, on the other hand, we're getting all the blessings that God at one time promised to Israel, but he has reneged. And he's decided to turn it over to Gentile Christians. That's the basis of replacement theology. However, there is no historical or biblical evidence that Ephraim ever returned with Judah. It is simply a tradition held by some Jews and Christians. In fact, the most widespread expectation among Jews during New Testament times was that the two houses of Israel would finally be reunited in the coming Messianic age. Now some ancient sages and rabbis like Rabbi Akiva say that the ten tribes the house of Ephraim will never return again. And he bases his conclusion he says on a passage from Deuteronomy 29-28 that says and he cast them into another land to this day. However, the venerable Rabbi Eliezer said in opposition To Akiva's position, like as the day grows dark and then grows light so after darkness has fallen upon the ten tribes shall light thereafter fall upon them. So he's saying they will return from exile eventually. The bottom line is that while there was no unanimous position on the issue of who exactly returned from the Babylonian exile, the majority opinion of sages, rabbis, and just common Jewish folk was that the ten tribes were not part of the return. This is just historically recorded. So the Jews saw themselves in the New Testament era as primarily being from the tribe of Judah, with some identifying with Benjamin, like with Paul, and then there were the Levites, but they were a special case. Now Paul in Acts 26 verse 7 seems to take the rather standard pharisaical position of his day that only Judah returned in exile. So the reunification of all twelve tribes under the banner of the Abrahamic covenant was only a hope. It was a still future event to him. Now I'm gonna point out that everything I see tells me that right now, I mean now, in our time, as I'm speaking, we are in the midst of the actual return of of the ten lost tribes to Israel as predicted in Ezekiel I have personally witnessed groups of those lost tribe members arriving to Israel at the airport to a lot of ceremony by the way and identifying themselves as such now Paul in verse 8 clarifies the connection he's making between the Abrahamic covenant and resurrection as when he says why do you people consider it incredible that God raises the dead but additional clarification is needed here Look, you people I don't know how he got away with that is a direct reference to Agrippa and Bernice because they represent the aristocratic Jews Their point of connection then with the Jewish people only occurs at the highest level with their aristocratic counterparts the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is why earlier I said that Paul was exaggerating because In reality, if you were not a Sadducee, you then believed as the Pharisees or as even the Essenes, both of which accept bodily resurrection. I have never found a Bible scholar who estimated the percentage of Jews who were Sadducees. But those who venture at least an opinion Agree, it's self evident that there were relatively few aristocratic, wealthy Jews when compared to the number of common folks. So there were relatively few Sadducees. Paul's stand on resurrection then would have represented the majority opinion among Jews. His opinion was anything but new or radical. There is no chance, no chance that he was on trial for holding the majority opinion on the issue of resurrection as he implies he is. Can you see that? But shortly Paul is going to use the issue of resurrection to segue into presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to Festus, Agrippa, Berenice, and their elite guests, something I'm quite sure they were not expecting. For now, however, he goes back in time to when he was working for the Sanhedrin and he confesses some unflattering truths about himself. He admits he was an enemy. To the way and to the name of Yeshua of Nazareth. He thought it was his obligation to use all of his energy and authority to round up believers and throw them into prison. I like the way that F.F. F. Bruce takes the liberty, to use the English language, to bring across in modern terms what Paul intended to convey about his personal past. I agree wholeheartedly with him. He, has, he puts these words into Paul's mouth. Pharisee though I was, and thus in theory a believer in the resurrection of the dead, I yet judged it incredible in this particular case, the resurrection of Yeshua, and thought it was my duty to oppose such a heresy. That impacts me. See, I think back to what seems like only yesterday but in fact a couple of decades and more to when I opposed any thought of observing Sabbath on the seventh day. No one could have convinced me that Jesus didn't nail the law to the cross. I was solid in my belief that everyone had two choices believe in the law of Moses for salvation, of course, that was for Jews, or believe in Christ for salvation, that was for Gentiles. I scoffed at the notion that the Old Testament had any place in my study or my life. I was a New Testament believer. And like Paul, I knew of scripture that said otherwise to each of these things, but my personal spiritual blinders, my absolute loyalty to denomination and to traditional Gentile Christian creed, these things were all so firm that I thought it heresy. Heresy that anyone could say something different and be right about that which the entire church at least the church that I knew anything about called wrong maybe some of you felt the same way hope you still don't if F.F. Bruce then were to paraphrase my thoughts as he did with Paul's then he would have these words coming out of my mouth Christian though I was, and in theory a believer in what the Bible says, I yet judged it incredible in those particular cases and thought it my duty to oppose any such heresies. Paul admits in verse 10 that he bore absolute culpability for sending Christians to their death an obvious confirmation of having some sort of membership in the Sanhedrin, he says he cast his vote against them, thus voting for their execution because voting is exactly how verdicts were rendered in the Sanhedrin. He says he wandered synagogue to synagogue to synagogue searching for believers. What does this confirm? that there were individual believers present in a number of synagogues and they were part of the regular congregation of Jews. That is, they weren't necessarily believing synagogues, rather only a portion of the synagogue, maybe just a single person, believed that Yeshua was the Messiah. In fact, Paul says he tried to get those whom he found to do what? Blaspheme. This is interesting. Think about that for a minute. Think what you've heard. Think what you probably just thought. Many commentators say this means he tried to get them to renounce Yeshua. Right? It sounds like. I can't accept that. Think about it. How could Paul believe, back at the time that he was not a believer, that renouncing Yeshua was blaspheming if he thought the believers were heretics for believing in Yeshua in the first place? Do you follow that? No. If anything, refusing to renounce Yeshua might have been A charge, brought along a charge of blasphemy. But I doubt it. As many messiahs were running around the Holy Land with followings at this time. Many. It was kind of the norm. We sure don't hear of any executions over it. But this overlooks the obvious. What Paul means is that he was trying to get them to blaspheme in some classic. Jewish understanding of what was commonly held by the Sanhedrin is blaspheming. Something that could be proved in the Jewish courts. And the reason for trying to get the believers to blaspheme was so there would be a legal cause for their execution. That would be one way to stamp out a sect of Judaism that the Sadducees obviously were apprehensive about. Now one of the few non-criminal things that a Jew could be tried for in Jewish courts and then executed for was blasphemy. In fact, the Torah calls for execution for blasphemy. But the intent, the rotten intent, of the high priest was to use the tool of blasphemy and then execution for religious persecution. Not for upholding the sanctity of God's commandments. I find it interesting that Paul admits that he went so far as to pursue believers even outside of the Holy Land. See, the thing is, that before Paul became a believer this new movement with Jesus as its leader was happening exclusively in the Holy Land nowhere else so if there were known believers elsewhere it was because they had fled hoping to avoid arrest these believers all belonged to one synagogue or another (coughs) and a synagogue would have cooperated with the Jewish temple authorities if they were asked to see this is proof that even though the synagogue and the temple were two separate entities and they did not share an authority structure the ruling of the Jewish high court the Sanhedrin was honored By synagogues, in most cases anyway. Even by synagogues in foreign nations. Well, we'll continue next week when Paul tells his distinguished audience about his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus.